Hi, and welcome to On the Brink, a fresh lens to take your business to new heights and you with it. Remember, I'm Andy Simon. I'm your host and your guide, and my job is to get you off the brink. How do I do that? I'd love to bring to you interesting people who are going to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Why? Because unless you see it and feel it, you won't know what it is, and then you won't know how to think about it or do it. But today's a very special day. I have Marie-Claude Stockel with us today. And Marie-Claude and I know each other quite some time. She does some marvelous things I'm going to tell you about. But she's going to talk to us today about her own perspectives of how do we reinvent, not innovate necessarily, but reinvent our companies as we go through this wonderfully fast-paced, changing time. I say wonderfully, most of us are hating it, but I love change. And Marie-Claude also does. Um, But part of our discussion is going to be about her observations about what's happening inside companies today that need new tools so that they can see, feel, and think in new ways. And that requires us to pause, step back, and look at it a little bit like an anthropologist. So who's Marie Claude? She's a communication consultant and executive coach, a native of France. You're going to hear that in her accent a little bit. She began her career in New York, where she reported to presidents and CEOs at Nestle Foods, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Revlon for 20 years. A C-suite public affairs executive, she's a broad experience in crisis management, strategic planning, and internal and external communication with key stakeholders. She's orchestrated high-profile events with newsmakers, a former U.S. president, James Earl Jones, Michael Jackson, Claudia Schiffer, cool stuff. Fifteen years ago, she did something quite innovative. Maybe it's a reinvention, but she and I are both horse people. I fox hunted for 25 years. I've owned horses. Marie Claude has a wonderful farm. And what she decided to do was combine her two passions, corporate life and horses. Now think about reinvention here. She created the Horse Institute, which is just brilliant, where she brings executives to the horse farm for strategic retreats and team development. Now think about it. She'll tell you more. But if you've never touched a horse, here's a halter. Let's go put it on. How do you build a bond with a strange creature? And then think about how do you build a bond with an interesting person? Ah, it's a real interesting institute and something you should pay attention to if you're looking to reinvent, reimagine, or change your organization. Marie-Claude graduated summa cum laude from the University of Paris with a master's degree in communication, which she's used so beautifully. She's a certified facilitator and executive coach, and she's now studying to become a certified reinvention practitioner that she will tell you about. Marie-Claude, thank you for coming. Oh, Andy, thank you. I am such a big fan of you, your books, your blogs, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. You do so much for professional women, and I'm really, really honored to be sharing some of the experience and maybe some of the future vision of where we can take the big adventure of ours. Thank you very much for the little plug. I truly appreciate the fan club. It's been a fascinating experience helping women see, feel, and think themselves in in a new way. Before we get too far into my book, I'd rather you talk a little bit about your own journey. Flitch out what you're, you know, because it's a very personal story, but it sets the stage for what you're doing now and why people will find it very fascinating to know more about you. Please, who is Marie Claude? So I was very fortunate as a little girl. I had two very strong role models. My aunt, who came from modest background, a small 
rural area in France, but she pulled herself through medical school. She pulled my father, her younger brother, through medical school. And if that wasn't enough, she had six children married to a doctor who passed away young, and she had to raise those children by herself. Fast forward into her 90s, she was still writing to the editors of medical journals and being published. So this was my first role model. My second role model was my mother. She taught um, French literature, Greek and Latin at a time when if you were married to a doctor, it was not acceptable. So I had a pretty good uh, inspiration, but yet as young as eight and nine and 10, I realized that the messages, the expectations of young girls were different from those of young boys. For example, I had to make the beds. I had to, was asked to clear the table and Pretty early on, I rebelled, just as you say in your book. No, I don't have to do this. No, I don't have to accept the status quo and um, wouldn't do anything my brother didn't do. So I've been really fortunate. And I think now with the perspective of having a career uh, experience, we can also be role models for women. I think what happened when I, well, I'll let you continue because I'm sure you have some observations on that too. Well, I'm I'm fascinated by your backstory because you've moved through corporate life in different ways and then became a consultant, but you've always been a very strong woman. And I, too, had my women role models. In some ways, they've been um, a subconscious lagging pressure point for us to figure out how to achieve. But my grandmother owned a family firm and my mother and my father both were there. It was hard to tell who was running it sometimes, Uh, but she would take me out into the market to show me how to buy goods for the store. And I remember sitting there next to her. And once I said to her, you know, grandma, how do you know what to buy? Talk about science. And she said, well, Andrea, a third is going to sell full price. A third is going to sell on sale and a third is going to walk out the door. And if it all works out good, we will make a very nice living. And I laughed. I said, so the science is just buy stuff and hope it sells. Oh, it was quite an education. But as we were talking, both of us were raised by strong women. And I know my mother was very convinced that education was extremely important and that I could be whatever I wanted to become. And I will tell you that my job wasn't to become the head of their business. It was to become an anthropologist because that's what it really increased. How about yourself? So it's funny you should mention education. Uh, I was lucky because I, um, I was passionate about sports and very competitive, very athletic. And I picked two sports where women and men compete equally on equal footing. That's riding horses, showing equestrian sports and sailing. So that was an outlet for all my frustrations. But then when I was 16, I announced at the dinner table, there was absolutely no point for me to go to high school because, see, I was going to ride horses. Well, you can imagine how that went over with my parents. And they said, well, you are going to go have a college degree, complete, preferably a graduate degree. Then you can do anything you want. You can get married. You can ride your horses. So that's what I did. I did get the degree, but then fell in love and moved to New York with um, a young American who's still my husband today, very supportive. And their reality hit because, again, I met through word of mouth. I knew nobody in New York and I wanted a career in communication. English wasn't my first language. 
So it was kind of challenging. And oh, did I mention we also had a young baby? So that was the picture. And back in the 70s, uh, it was a different world. So I was lucky I ran into women who introduced me to other women in PR. And long story short, I ran into um, the editor of the PR trade journal, who was quite well known, and he was a man, he gave me some advice along the lines that, you know, you better take shorthand and improve your typing because no woman is going to go in PR without starting as a secretary. Of course, I didn't take that for an answer. And I was able to get a, a job as assistant account executive and then account executive in a mid-sized PR agency where I had a great mentor. And because I was on television all the time, I ended up, you know, being contacted by headhunters. And that's how I landed my first corporate job at Nestle Foods. And Nestle has been really good to me for seven years. They gave me eight promotions. But I'd like to give you some anecdotes on how challenging it was in those days, because I was the only woman manager. <laughs> oh, I have a feeling. Well, what, what kind of the anecdotes you can make your own career come alive in the stories? Sure. So... Uh, at that time, companies were becoming a little aware that it'd be nice to show themselves as having some diversity, but they had only one woman. So I ended up doing double duty, dragging my poor husband to all these black tie affairs, functions almost every night of the week so that I could show the flag. And it was exhausting. I mean, clearly, I did not get much sleep in those days, but I loved every minute of it. And um, we had our moments. Um, <laughs> This is going to sound very uh, antiquated, but you're talking back in the 80s. Uh, the computer couldn't tell the difference between men and women. So all women, well, all women were secretaries and I would get flowers for Secretary's Day, which sent me in a tizzy. So my own secretary and the other assistants, uh, executive secretaries would hide those flowers, but they did more than that. And that's the point I want to make. They also, when I was promoted, remember, we were making 59 cents to the dollar, not 82 cents to the dollar, which is not 100% yet, but 59 cents. Remember those buttons we carried? So when I was promoted, they had a real problem. They came to me and said, look, at that level, you have your own executive secretary, but I don't think any woman is going to want to work for a woman. I said, well, why don't you ask them? And I did end up with a woman who worked for the VP I replaced working for me. And then this was the beauty of it. They were so excited to see a woman now reporting to a president. If I was left out of a memo, they would copy it and give me a copy. They kept me in the loop. So oh, when I hear women don't support each other, oh my goodness. I want to bust that myth. Women support each other. And we need to continue doing this at all levels. And then a few years went back and I was in my 30s and 40s. I was able to start helping women network. So if I heard that there was a position open and I knew of somebody, I would just pass it along. And 10 years later, five years later, I would get run into a woman at a meeting and she says, oh my gosh, you've changed my career. And I, I didn't even remember her. But see, I think that the networking among each other is something that can still continue oh and is very helpful and very supportive. You know, though, we both grew up where we were soloists very often. 
And and sometimes as you moved into the senior ranks, you had an abundance of women in junior ranks, whether it was the secretaries or branch managers when I ran a bank. And and you had to begin to be that um, communicator between the the leadership group and the general management team and those who were working in the trenches. And I remember I ran a bank branch for Citibank and uh, the women, most of whom were my staff, were fascinated because I let them bring their kids in when the kids had a school day from snow or something. And we turned the back kitchen into a, um, a classroom and and they could rotate and go back in there and care for the kids. So they didn't have to lose a day of work. Um, and neither did the kids lose their parents' involvement. And nobody said a word about it. And I never said a word about it either. But we all helped each other. And I, mm-hmm. as you were talking, I was saying, oh, I remember that feeling of giving and sharing. And they mm-hmm. all were great supporters. We also turned the bank branch around. I took over the worst bank branch in the in the region. And, and man, can you inspire people to work hard when there's a collaboration going on there? And it isn't I and you, it's we. And those yeah, were- It's a beautiful people. example, the one that you just gave. Um, you know, and that is why- um, I think that it's been a relief for me to see so many women being promoted. And um, actually, I see I do a lot of work in um, healthcare, as you know, and I teach a course. I mean, I, I want to give a little ray of hope before I start being all, all gloom and doom. But uh, I teach a course at Drexel called the Elates Program for Women in STEM and these are professors in science, technology, engineering, and math who are rising stars on their way to become presidents or deans. And um, it's a wonderful program. It's a communications course. And one of the issues that comes up regularly is um, how difficult it is for them, especially in STEM. I think women in medicine have made a little bit more progress, but stand there, really having trouble breaking through the ranks and becoming deans. And it is communication. So more often than not, they'll say, look, I come up with an idea. I said in a meeting, this nobody even acknowledges it. Five minutes later, some guy comes up with the same idea or my idea, and then he becomes the hero. And I see this also when we bring groups of executives, both genders, with the horses at the Horse Institute, because everybody's on the same playing field. If we tell a horse, do something, they're not riding. They're just using their nonverbal communication to communicate to a horse that they want to do something. And at some point they get stuck. If they're not completely aligned, the horse just like "Ah," looks at them like a pet rock and enjoys the the ride. Mm -hmm. So sometimes a woman will come up with an idea and say, well, I think, I don't know, but perhaps we could never makes it through. And when we debrief, and sometimes she'll even repeat it twice and not be heard. So then we have wonderful discussions about, well, did you hear Jane here? What was happening? What was the horse doing? Did you hear Jane suggesting that you go and hurt the horse? No, she doesn't speak loud enough. Then I said, well, Jane, when does that happen? Well, it happens all the time. You know, I get blown over. Nobody listens to my idea. So then I go back to the guy and say, would it have been a good idea had you heard it? Yes. So now they know not to ignore a great idea. And then the next thing is, and I think women have to think about this. 
who is responsible? How can you be heard? And I think that, you know, coming from a culture where we speak softly, I find that you have to go beyond your comfort level and almost shout. You feel like you're shouting. It's not just women. Some other cultures don't shout. And conversely, the person now knows not to ignore your great ideas. And it takes practice. It takes practice. And now a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled, or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey. Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink. Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at andysimon.com and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books. And you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves, very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. I do think three things um, hasn't gotten better on um, virtual. And there's some good research showing that <clears throat> the men, the more they talk, the more important they are. And the women, the more they talk, the more painful they are. I mean, we judge things, same things, but in different fashions. And on virtual, the women aren't being heard any more than they were in person, which is really disturbing. The second thing is that boys and girls are raised and they developed mindsets, stories in their minds about how boys and girls do things and who you listen to. And as a result, those values are, are developing through their early years. And so while we can be um, unhappy, critical of those situations now, it's not easy to change old habits. They are honed early. They become the way we do things without anyone saying it. They watch men and women in the household talk to each other, and they watch who does what and how. And so we've got a culture that needs to be transformed for women to be able to have a voice. Now, what I love, um, there are some companies now like Siemens that have all women in the leadership and um, I was hearing of an insurance company, it'll come to mind, where men and women are paid exactly the same and people of color are paid the same as white people. There's, there are changes coming. I have a friend, Jamie Candy, who runs Edmenton. She's president of a $150 million business and she's making gender balance the way we do things. And she's teaching them how to listen and talk to each other. This isn't 
you know, say the words and it'll happen. This is a transformation of the way we do things that doesn't come from saying them. You can't tell it or sell it. You need to begin to show why that matters. I mean, you're thought about, didn't you hear? Nope, I didn't hear. Well, you weren't listening because it was a woman who was saying it. What would have happened if a guy had said it? And ideas will go <clears throat> not be heard and not be done because of the gender or the, the race. The people of color have an equally hard time. The yep. thing that I, I, um, I have a friend She's a chapter in the book. You may remember Andy Kramer's story, but she tells a great story about being on the compensation committee of her law firm. <clears throat> and the men would write their own reviews and they all climbed the Empire State Building to save the damsel in distress <clears throat> and the company to reclaim $500 million. <clears throat> the women would write their reviews where they all worked well together to find to come, you know, collaborative solutions to make sure that the company never lost $500 million. The men got promoted and got raises and the women kept their jobs. Very different values. And there's nothing inherent, bad or good in either. But it truly, if a woman said she had climbed the Empire State Building to save the guy in distress, they'd scratch their head and say, what is she talking about? And it's humorous on one hand, but as Andy said, it was tragic. Because where do you begin to change the dynamics? Remember, there are 400,000 attorneys, but only 27% are equity partners. And that's all because of this bad funnel. Now, it's funny you should mention attorneys. I mean, are you sure we, you read the news? I read, I think it was like 10 days ago, not that long ago, where the Supreme Court uh, recognized officially that male uh, justice interrupt uh, female attorneys and, and justices more than they do uh, their male colleagues, and uh, he's now going to do something about it, and they're going to establish some rules and then procedures to avoid that. So there will be Ooh. changes. There are changes. So well, just the recognition changes. of it and just the acknowledgement of it. But remember, yeah. the other part of our society is over half the doctors now are women. Half, four hundred thousand. That's forty percent of the attorneys. Sixty-five percent of the accountants are women. Um, there's a, more women are in college than men. More women are graduating college than men do. So if you just take the dots, and that was part of the reason for writing the book, if you just take the dots, there's a sea change coming. You might not notice it in the number of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies or the amount of VC money that are given to women, 2.8%, like but there's something coming that is well worth us paying attention to because it's bigger and it's societal and it's cultural. And we're sort of, I won't say at the end of that transformation, we're at the beginning of the next one, but to your point, mentoring other women, networking with them, this is a time for us to help others move through this transformation and see its possibilities. And I have a hundred years doing the same. Yes. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned um, female doctors. Uh, for 10 years, I've been teaching a course through the American Association of Medical Colleges, AMC, for new deans of medical colleges. And lately, last two, three, four years, I've been seeing women new women, dean who are women, in my last cohort, I had three female surgeons. They were wow. so inspiring and it was fantastic. So yes, there is a gradual change and we need to celebrate that, not always live in the past and wonder if all the work we've done was for naught. It wasn't. We, we need to help others pick up the ball and uh, not get discouraged. 
No, but I don't. And you and I are optimists and we do see the upside. Um, you know, I always there was a line in my book that my proofreader pulled out. She said it makes me think it was a joke. I used to belong. I was an executive in a bank and I um, go to board meetings with 49 men and none in me. And we didn't say anything, neither the nun nor I. And we attended and we appeared and we diversified and we had a role to play. But it was no worth trying to say anything. And it was always so it's it, these are are growing pains that I feel profoundly. And it's uh, it's interesting. You, though, have a new business developing in this coaching and this reinvention. Um, talk a little bit about it, because I'd like the listeners to know how you're reinventing yourself. Yes, I'm no exception. The pandemic has uh, forced me to step back and think about what's working, not working in my life. And a lot of things are working. Um, but what's changed are the client's needs. And we have for 15 years had those executive retreats. They come for two, three days. We send them back with great strategic plans, new tools, new skills for leading. For leading. But now the biggest change has been the life of the cycle of a product or business model, which is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So whereas 75 years ago, uh, uh, last century, you could have the same business model, the same product for 75 years and make some tweaks and improvements, but you definitely did not have to reinvent your business. Now, in the 90s with technology, that life cycle became 15 years. You really have to reinvent your business every 15 years, and now it's six years. So the interesting part about this is how companies can address that. It was okay in the old days to have the CEO either hire a consultant and do a project, an innovation project, and manage that. Uh, but now the CEO cannot really humanly both run a company that's growing fast and also start thinking about the next iteration of the company. So CEOs are hiring reinvention officers and um, the key to the success, I believe, and I'm only in the process of being certified, uh, what's exciting is that it's a little bit different from innovation. It's quite different because if you talk about innovation, a lot of companies are trying to do this, but the problem here is very few people are innovators. I believe science uh, research studies suggest that only 2.5% of all of us are true innovators. So if you bring an innovator, whether it's a consultant or in-house in uh, innovator, it's very hard to get the masses, everybody to embrace the change. Um, Whereas everyone is capable of reinvention. And I will give you an example. And all of you, you can try it with a room of 30 people. If you say, you all come up with a new way to transport 10 pounds, brand new way, you are probably after five minutes get zero, maybe one idea. However, if you ask the question a different way and you say, can you come up, all 30 of you, with a way to improve your backpack? You will have 30 ideas and they will build on each other. And then you have allowed people to say, okay, it doesn't have to be perfect, but I can have good ideas. Now, this is only an example to show that there are a number of ways you can 
start having a culture of reinvention at a time when, uh, you know, things, and I'm reinventing my own business. I'm trying to preach what I practice, what I preach. So I wanted you to share because that's exactly each of us have evolved through our careers by not being stuck or stalled, uh, but by reimagining ourselves. My first book on the brink, uh, Fresh Lands to Take Your Business to New Heights was about how anthropology helps a business get stuck or stalled change. And the eight case studies in there were eight clients who had come to us when they were stuck or stalled and had to change. And often, to your point, the ideas were all around them. The problem was that their brains, their minds saw their business this way. But that was good when you had 70 years for a business. And all of the ideas were floating around here and your mind just mm -hmm, discounted them. Because it didn't fit the story of what we do and how we do it. And all of a sudden, they discovered if they just looked on either side, they didn't have to create a new sandbox. They just had to think about all the edges of what's there mm -hmm. and begin to see how it could move the business in new fashion. But as you know, I'm a blue ocean strategist. And mm -hmm. blue oceans are creating new markets as opposed to competing in them. And it's very much the same perspective that there's a way of taking what you do really well and saying, that's a, that's a red ocean. I'm just like everyone else in the same business. What could I do? You intuitively did Blue Ocean with the Horse Institute. There's no market there. There's no competitors. You know, you saw need. You had a fashion. And intuitively, you are a reimagining person, right? And in fact, I love the fact that now we are more competitors and more people are doing equine-assisted learning. I mean, I became the president of an international association and just attended a conference in Arizona for three days of that association where our keynote speaker was a remarkable neurosurgeon, Dr. Steve Peters, who wrote a book called uh, the evidence-based uh, horsemanship. But basically, we spent three days of instant thinking of how people learn Yes. And how horses learn. And I'm marrying the two because some of the things that horses teach us, nonverbal communication, how to organize a herd effectively for the greater good rather than you know, survival of the fittest, all these things are coming together quite nicely. And the biggest change I think I envisioned, but again, I may change my mind after I speak to clients, is that uh, instead of having a one-time and uh, you know fantastic experience to support the client in their journey to establish processes in um, reinvention and, and managing change. So. This has been such fun. Since both my granddaughters are horse, um, very successful horse people at 12 and 14, and both of my daughters are extraordinary horse women, and then my husband and I are both horse people, and we, we get it. But if you don't know horses well, you're missing an opportunity, whether it's at the Horse Institute or talking to Marie Claude about how um, a cross-species relationship can open you mm -hmm. through the senses to what's possible and to see yourself. Remember, I'm an anthropologist. I want you to see yourself through a fresh lens, step back and begin to see what this can actually do to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. So let me wrap up today. Reclaude, if they'd like to get a hold of you, what's the best place to do that? So I would love for them to go to the website, thehorseinstitute.com, and they can either download the brochure to go deeper into how we work with the horses to help companies uh, perform better, or ask me for a hard copy. And my contact information is on the website, mc at the horseinstitute.com. So you can reach me through the website. 
And you'll love the conversation as I do. Well, for all of you who come to our podcast, thank you for coming to see us or to hear us. Uh, my fans are really there. You are great. And Psychology Today is having an article coming out um, that um, Michael Stein has, is writing about uh, why On the Brink is a cool podcast. So share it away. It's a cool podcast to have conversations with neat people so you can help them get off the brink. And that's what we're trying to do. My two books are out there, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and they will make you feel good about what you're doing and how to do it better. And so share them. Uh, we're sharing people these days. So it's been a pleasure. Remember, you can send me your ideas at info at andysimon.com. And all of this is available on all the uh, Spotify and um, iTunes. And you can find us on our website, andysimon.com or simonassociates.net. So come and join us. Enjoy. And send me who you want to talk to, like Marie Claude. Thank you, Marie Claude. It's been such fun. So we're going to say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye now.